Hello and welcome to Inside Intercom. I'm Liam Garrity. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by applied behavioral economist Melina Palmer. Melina is the host of the Brainy Business podcast, as well as the author of two books, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You, and What Your Customers Need and Can't Tell You. We're going to focus on the customer side of things today, and particularly about the role of behavioral economics for your business. Melina will be telling us what they are exactly, how you can implement them in your company, and why your brain is a bit like riding an elephant. This is such a fascinating conversation. It got my brain cells pinging, and hopefully it'll do the same for you. So let's head over to studio to meet Melina Palmer. Melina, thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome to the show. Oh, yes. Excited to be here. So I suppose just to kick things off, could you tell us a little bit about your journey up until this point in your career? Sure. So, uh, you know, if we go all the way back, I had always planned actually to go to school for musical theater. Like that was the plan uh, forever and ever. And uh, then while I was in high school, uh, decided I didn't want to be a high school choir teacher. I loved my own, but that was not the path that I wanted for myself. And uh, did some looking around, ended up in uh, business administration and marketing. And while I was doing my undergrad, there was, you know, one class had like one section of one book, a little bit about buying psychology and why people do the things they do. And I thought it was just the most amazing thing I had ever seen in my whole life. And I had never really thought about getting an advanced degree at that point before then. But then I said, you know, I'm going to go get a master's in this. And I spent the better part of 10 years calling universities that all said, that's not a thing that doesn't exist. It's not a program uh, as I was trying to find something. And then got my, you know, was working in brand strategy and and marketing and ended up coming across some people from what's called the Center for Advanced Hindsight at Duke University, which is their behavioral economics wing led under Dan Ariely. And when they were talking about their research, I realized, you know, this was the thing that I had been looking for. And so I cornered them and made them talk to me for much longer than I'm sure they wanted to. (laughs) And they said it was called behavioral economics. And I found myself a master's program. And, you know, I knew I was early because I had been looking for it, but I didn't realize just how early I was. And especially on the applied side of that, you know, academic research, there was quite a bit And even then it was, you know, a few decades worth of research versus uh, some other fields, which are much longer. And, you know, all the stuff that was really clear to me about how this applies to communication and change management and brand strategy and all these things really nobody was talking about anywhere. And so had that, you know, why not me moment and uh, started the Brainy Business Podcast. And it really took off because it was the first of its kind in the world. And that's led to uh, books and teaching and keynote speaking and all sorts of fun stuff. So, yeah. Brilliant. And I presume you're still a musical theater fan. Uh, Yes, yes, for (laughs) sure. And, you know, for a while, that was the thing. It was like, I can always sing without a degree, but it's probably best. <laughs> it's <laughs> harder to go do something else with a, a musical theater type of degree. So I do singing. I've sung the national anthem for the Seattle Mariners oh, uh, wow. and done in the Seattle Storm and some others as well. So yeah, still still get out and sing sometimes. But you know, the doing the keynotes and podcasting, it's 
got the being on the stage vibe that I like. (laughs) (laughs) Brilliant. Well, so you've written this fantastic book that we're going to chat about today. It's called What Your Customer Wants, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. There it is. Yes. (laughs) Well, so the first thing I wanted to ask you for like probably myself and probably a a good few people listening, what are behavioral economics? (laughs) Yeah, yes. It's typically that people really flub up when it's trying to say that I am a behavioral economist because you want to say economics and it kind of goes wonky there. But yeah, it's not the sexiest title to be sure. And it's one that's, uh, you know, needs a, a dose of its own medicine to be sure. But essentially, behavioral economics is if you had traditional economics and psychology, psychology had a baby, we would have behavioral economics and behavioral science. And it's all about the psychology of why people buy. For me, I also build in to that change management and knowing that you still, even if money's not exchanging hands, you still need someone to buy in on whatever idea it is that you are selling them. And so understanding the rules that the brain actually makes uses to make decisions instead of what we think it should do is where we get into behavioral economics, because traditional economics assumes logical people making rational choices and everything they do all of the time. And as we're all human, we know that's not really the world that we live in. Uh, And so behavioral economics uh, has found these common threads within the brain to be able to predictably understand what people will really do. And so like in a business context, like why does this matter? Uh, well, even though we've got, you know, some real tech out there these days, you are likely still doing business with human people, both on that customer side, you're probably uh, always going to be selling to humans, even when they're within organizations for large, you know, B2B type of contracts, and you're working with other humans. And so being able to communicate with them more effectively, and easier and understanding how you can work with the rules of the brain, instead of making it much harder when it doesn't have to be is incredibly important. And so what's really cool about behavioral economics, what I really love about it is that you can make really small tweaks to things that don't have to cost money and it can make a huge impact and the swings go both ways, right? So you may be messaging something and it's being a total flop and it's not that the pricing is wrong. It's not that the product is wrong, but you just framed it wrong, right? It might be a little something that's off and you can make a tiny tweak and everything can then work. I think I've seen you talk about a great example of the previews for Netflix movies. And this is one that I'd kind of noticed myself using streaming services was that, you know, a film that I might not necessarily have been interested in, but suddenly the image is now like of a particular actor in that film. It mightn't have been the main actor, but right. they, they know through the algorithm that I like this particular actor and, right. and that's what sells it to me. For sure. And it's like they might have a super obscure part. Like that's the the one second that they're in the movie. Right. But you're like, ooh, you know, uh, Tom Felton is in this or whatever (laughs) that happens to be. Right. But definitely. And and so that research was even just on simple A-B testing, you know, that Netflix was able to find out way back. So if we try to look way back in the day, the studios would just take whatever imagery came from 
the studio, that's what you would use. And you just assume it shouldn't matter, right? The description's good enough and whatever, we should just like the movie and we go watch it. But what Netflix found was that changing out the image would increase the click-through rate and likelihood of staying within Netflix by as much as 30% just by changing out and having the right image. And again, they were able to do that with simple A-B testing. It's not something that we have to be doing huge, uh, you know, undertakings. So being able to know what you're testing for and make those simple changes can make a really big difference. If I may, there's another example Mm. that I think really helps with this concept of framing. So if you were to imagine you're going to the grocery store, and you're going to buy some hamburger and you need to get there. There are two stacks, almost identical, uh, but one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other as 10% fat. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, going for that, I'm going for that 90% fat free. Yeah. That's so weird when you say it like that because you're like, right. the 10% fat, you just, yeah. You're just it imagining gross. that. Yes. It's disgusting. Like <laughs> I haven't been to the gym in like three years. I don't want that at all. And 90% fat free feels like this amazing choice you're making for you and your family. Right. And so logically we know it's the same thing, but it feels completely different. So within business to go and look for all those points where you are communicating in 10% fat terms, how might you change it to be that 90% fat free even better is is there a spot where your entire industry is talking 10% fat and you can be the 90% fat free? Even if you're saying the same thing, saying it slightly differently can make it so people naturally choose you. That's the power of behavioral economics. Um, I think it's in the book as well about the Amazon buy now button is Mm. kind of a fascinating one. Yeah. So, you know, way back, you know, the, we, we've all used the buy now button many times, but probably don't realize that Amazon patented one click buying back in. And I think it's 1999 that they put a patent on that. And so it made it so that no one else could have one click buying, which, you know, with all the times in business, we say it's just one more form, one more click, one more link, one more, this one more, that no big deal. Right. But That is a really big deal. It's this little moment of friction and sludge. And if you don't just believe that patenting process, which they defended a lot, (laughs) that you also have Steve Jobs paid a million dollars to have one-click buying in iTunes. So he bought that from Amazon to have the rights for that. And you say he paid a million dollars to reduce a single click. If all those extra tidbits were to add up and be that, you know, million dollar, do you actually need them, right? There are so many things, and I see this with my clients, I I see this all the time when I interview for books and things that, and just as a person trying to buy stuff, right, that people will ask for a gargantuan amount of things that you know are not relevant for the one thing that's trying to be done here, right? And if you ask, like, in this one moment, What's if we only get one thing out of it, what's the most important thing? And that first form, maybe you just want to have the email address of someone who is potentially interested so you can follow up with them down the line. So asking about their job title and how many years they've been at their job and what their household income is and their gender and all these things that might be relevant down the line are actually making a lot of people leave before you had a chance that they were already interested, right? But you pushed them away with stuff you didn't need 
right now. So being more thoughtful about that can make a really big difference on uh, conversions for sure. I'd love to talk a little bit about the brain and how it works <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, with all of this. You know, how would you kind of sum it up or how would you describe the way the brain works? Yeah, for sure. So in behavioral sciences, we uh, look at the brain. It's a, two systems of processing. I like to just use the terms conscious and subconscious because it's stuff people are familiar with. And as far as getting what it means, that's the easiest way to think about it. And so we know we have a subconscious and that it's doing some stuff, but we like to really underestimate what's happening there. And my favorite analogy for thinking about the brain is one from a psychologist from NYU. And he talks about to think about the brain like a person riding an elephant. And so you have your logical conscious rider you know where you want to go. You know where we're trying to get to. You have the plan. Best way to get there. Yes. <laughs> and <laughs> you're at the mercy of that subconscious elephant. And if it wants to go in a different direction or if it just wants to sit down, you're kind of stuck. You can't push or pull or logic it into going where you want it to go. And those two systems of the brain also don't speak the same language. So they don't connect and talk to each other. And so in business, in all communication, we like to think we're a writer communicating with other writers, but the buying brain is that elephant. And so I kind of, you know, joke in the book about becoming more like an elephant whisperer, right? So <laughs> being able to understand and communicate with the elephant and what motivates it. And then, you know, the writer is going to be able to, you know, logic and explain why it knew it all along and that was the best way. But drawing in the attention of the elephant is where you want to focus that subconscious processing. So, well, like you said there, the focus is really on the subconscious for the purpose of what we're talking about. Do I have that right? Yeah. Yeah. And that's like, we think about that framing piece, right? Where we're talking about buying the hamburger and the 90% fat free. Mm. This is a rule of framing, understanding the way we present information, how you say something matters more than what. And that matters to that subconscious elephant in the way it processes. The writer can say, oh no, it doesn't matter. That wouldn't sway me. And yet it does, <laughs> right? And so we're also, we're a herding species. And so this is why testimonials and star ratings and things like that, social proof is very important. Understanding why we need that to feel safe. And when we're uncertain, we look to what other people like us are doing. Uh, and also to know that numbers are really powerful in swaying the way we look and think it, about things and having that knowledge. So those rules that the subconscious is using to make decisions, those are those concepts of behavioral economics. And, you know, what I do in my books and the podcast and consulting and stuff is helping people in business to understand what those rules are and how you can start to apply them. So in what your customer wants and can't tell you, I've picked 16 concepts of the hundreds that exist that I think are most important for people in business. And, you know, there are, there's a chapter for each really digging in on those. And then as you have them one at a time, then you can start to look at how you might start to bring them together as you're going to be applying concepts and, and trying to, you know, do stuff with knowledge that you have. Like you said, there's 16 in the book, but just as an example, could we pick one now just to kind of have, have a quick chat about? 
Of course. Yeah. So I already talked about framing. So, and that's Mm -hmm. the first one in there. Another one that I think is a really fun one is anchoring where I was talking about the numbers there. So there was a study that was done, another of my favorites that was also, you know, in a grocery store and they had two end cap displays. One was Snickers bars by them for your freezer. And the other says Snickers bars by 18 for your freezer, which Most people can agree 18 is probably more Snickers than we are buying. And if you were the one creating that ad, it would probably feel uncomfortable about that, right? It's an arbitrary number. I don't want people to ask why, but that writer would say, you know, but them is unlimited and people could get a hundred Snickers if they wanted to, right? (laughs) All these things to help us feel better. And it probably feels like it doesn't make that big of a difference, but there was a 38% increase in sales when the number 18 was used in Instead of the word them. And that's the only difference that there was, right? So here's a little bit of what's happening in that way. When it's them, it's actually kind of a fancy word for zero, right? If you're not already planning to buy. And 18, you might go, oh, like 18, I'm way better than everybody else. I don't need 18. I'll just get six, right? Whereas, you know, coming up from zero, maybe we get two or something, right? Uh, The other thing is there's a a subtle shift in the question behind the statements, a little reframe in them. So in the case of them, you're asking, hey, would you like some Snickers? Do you want any? Whereas when you have a number, it has that implied sale, you're reframed to be asking how many do you want to buy? Slightly different question there. And that can impact and change the behavior of the person that's looking to buy. All I know is that I am getting as many (laughs) are available if we're talking about chocolate bars. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's so interesting. And like, I love the way you describe the behavioral bakery, as you call it, you know, for people kind of thinking about using all this and and kind of taking in all the ingredients. How, How does that work? Yeah, for sure. So as you think about applying behavioral economics, I have this concept of behavioral baking where you think about this. So uh, if you decided you wanted to go open a bakery, you probably need to know what all the ingredients do on a basic level because flour, sugar, butter, and eggs can be combined in all sorts of different ways to make all sorts of different things. And you want to know each one on its own so you don't end up trying to put in like three cups of sugar and a tablespoon of flour and hope it's going to be a cake, right? Like that's not going to be great (laughs) for you. (laughs) So you need to know that. And then you have to know what it is that you want to make at the end, right? Are we making cupcakes or brownies or cookies or pizza, right? We want to know what we're trying to create. And then you're probably going to follow some sort of a recipe and probably something super simple from the beginning, like a box cake mix, right? And so in the book, I have a couple of recipes, quote unquote, in there for you to start playing around with as you bring in the concepts. If you were baking, you would never try to bake something. And if your cake came out dense or was soupy, you wouldn't say, oh, you know, I tried baking once. That's not real. That's not a thing, right? <laughs> That's a ridiculous thing to say. But we do that in business all the time, right? Like I I tried to do Instagram or I went on TikTok once and I didn't go viral. That's not real. That's not a thing, right? And so with behavioral economics, it would be the same. You can't say I tried to replicate one thing one time and it didn't work. So that's not a real thing. It's more of a lifestyle of these little tweaks and testing things out and asking really thoughtful questions. So the 
concepts like framing and anchoring are our ingredients, and which is why I introduce them one at a time in part two of the book. So you get to understand them on their own. And then you have that recipe of starting to put them in together as you do that baking with some tried and true methods before you start really experimenting and throwing in, you know, cinnamon or chopped nuts or something like that. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode one is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt or die moment. It's inevitable that All businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right? And see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. What are some like simple things that people could start thinking about in terms of implementing all of this if they're kind of like hearing all this for, you know, the first time or kind of, you know, want to put it into practice? For sure. So the the first thing that I always tell everybody, so I end every episode of the Brainy Business Podcast and my email signature is to be thoughtful. That's what I always say. And that's mixed in with both being more thoughtful about the things you do. That subconscious makes decisions on habit and the vast majority, right? A lot of what we're doing is habitual and we don't realize it. And same with our customers. And so when you are making a decision, when you open one email versus another one, or you delete a LinkedIn request and you accept someone else, or you notice where there's a box of cereal on the top shelf in the grocery store, right? To stop and go, I wonder why that is. Why did I open this one and I hated this one? And did they put it there on purpose or was that just happenstance? And what if it was on the bottom, right? If we be a little bit more thoughtful, be that curious questioner and start to look for different opportunities and say, you know, what if, what if we change the subject line? What if the email was of a different structure? What if we didn't do our meetings this way, right? There's all different ways that you could be applying that. A couple really easy things that you can apply from the concept of framing are three little tweaks that I always recommend. So the Mm -hmm. first one is, Instead of saying if, look for opportunities to say when. It's a simple shift, but if you say, hey, if you have questions, let me know. If you're interested in buying, here's the link. And that just sort of hangs out for everyone, right? But if you say, when you're ready, here's the link, right? That has that little implied uh, sale in there, right? Simple, but we say if 
all the time. And sometimes it's justified, but a lot of the time we don't need that. Uh, The other one is to go from anyone to everyone. So again, being a herding species, we like to feel safe and like everyone is doing something. And so like when I have a guest on the podcast, I don't say, uh, you know, if anyone wants to get so-and-so's book, there's a link for you. Say for everyone who is ready to go and get this book, the link is waiting for you in the show notes, right? So that everyone, the safety in the herd is a really simple shift we can make versus feeling super isolated as the anyone's of the world. And last is to go from ending a sentence to ending on a question. And especially like in an email, if you want people to respond, our brains are really wired to want to answer questions. So when you end with a question, it's going to prompt them to say something, which often is all you need in that first little bit. So you're not going to get ghosted, right? So instead of saying, hey, here are the dates. Let me know if these work for you, period. Right. You can say, here are some options. Which of these is best for you? Mm-hmm. And then you can say, oh, yeah, actually none of them work or, or whatnot. But ending on that question will help typically to get that conversation rolling. They're so good. Just before we wrap up, I'd love to get your thoughts on, particularly because we're talking about conscious and subconscious and the brain. I'd love to just get your thoughts on artificial intelligence. We're talking about AI and ChatGPT are, are everywhere at the minute, you know, especially mm-hmm. from, you know, your background or perspective on this. Yeah. Well, I think that there is a lot of crossover in understanding of human behavior and the information, you know, the data are only as good as the way we're able to interpret and understand it. And so being able to have this alignment of, knowing what you're looking for, why you're looking for that, and both for from a programming side and from an interpretation side. In the case of things like ChatGPT, I think there are a lot of really great opportunities with things like that, and I'm excited to see what happens. The biggest concern that I have in this is seeing and hearing reports of lots of citing sources that don't exist is something that apparently Uh, GPT does. hallucinations. (laughs) Right. And in understanding of human behavior and how we believe what we see or hear or read, and then we'll ask questions later, maybe, often not, where people don't, you're using it as a tool because you don't know the answer to something often. Like if I was using it and I go to pull a source for something and say, they didn't write that paper, right? I I know, like, that's not what that means. I, I know that pretty quickly. But people that aren't experts in the field, for vast majority of fields, would go and say, oh, that's the truth. It's cited a source. It's real. And then you go share that thing. And then more and more people believe it. And there's a problem with misinformation that you can't really unring those bells. And so that, I think, is something that needs to be fixed and then it can be making it so things are, are are much more likely to have great value. But in the interviews and conversations I've been having on the same topic with, with people, uh, really looking at training people, again, to be better questioners, to be able to use it as a tool to help you to understand and be a really solid questioner. I think it has really great potential and just want to make sure it's 
providing factual information. <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. I love the term hallucinations when it's just like <laughs> making up stuff, you know, that it doesn't have the answer for. Uh, yes. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I'm going to put all the links to the show and the book for everyone <laughs> in, in the description. Melina, it's been so lovely to chat with you today. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Melina Palmer there. And if you'd like to get a free chapter from both of Melina's excellent books, just go to thebrainybusiness.com forward slash intercom. You'll find a full transcript of today's show on the Intercom blog. The link is in the show notes. I'll be back next week for more Inside Intercom. Thanks for listening. This is Inside Intercom. Inside Intercom.